Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Brian Candelo. Good morning, church. Good morning. When I was in elementary school in the late 90s, When I was in elementary school, lo these many years ago, uh, there used to be an annual checkup at the nurse's office that every student had to participate in. You got called down to the nurse's office, and they ran you through four different tests. They did a lice check. They did a scoliosis exam. They did an... Uh, a hearing test where they put these big old school headphones on and uh, you had to raise which hand you heard the beep in that ear. And then there was an eye exam, but it wasn't one where you stood you know, at a line and read letters off of a chart. It was, you kind of looked in this microscope looking thing and inside was a picture of a family on a picnic. And they ask you a question, is the apple on the table or off the table? Anyone else in this room have that exam? Right, three of us, great. A lot of great commonality. We're going to keep pushing forward on this. When my wife was nine years old, she got called to the nurse's office. She aced the first three parts of that test. And then when she got to the fourth part, she looked inside this thing, and the nurse said, is the apple on the table or off the table? And she burst into tears. She started crying. And I'm sure the nurse was like, wow, what did I say? Does your family not take you on picnics? Or did you have a apple attack you, something bad like that. Uh, My wife burst into tears and she looked up at the nurse and she said, what table? She couldn't see that there was even a table in the picture that could hold an apple. And so that led to further conversations where the nurse was like, maybe you need glasses. And that led down a road to where my wife got glasses and she could see and there was a solution to her problem. She just didn't know what that was. And it's one thing to have an issue but not know how to solve it But it's an entirely different thing to know that there's a solution for your problem, but not embrace it. Because there are some of you that need glasses that won't get them. You know the people, the ones that are always asking you, can you read this for me? Can you read this? People who know that there's a solution, but they kick against that solution. And they have excuses, and I get them. They're like, well, you know, my eyes aren't that bad yet, or I just don't really have time to lean into that whole process next month or next year. And they have excuses. That, you know, glasses are a hassle. You change temperatures, and they fog up. You get pictures, and there's just white dots where your eyes are supposed to be. But it really is a problem when you're driving with these people, <laughs> right? When you're like, no, you need glasses, Do you see what's going on here? And I just don't understand that. I don't understand how can vision not be at the top of your priority list? How can seeing well not like lead the way on this thing? How could you kick against something that could improve your life? And we do that, don't we? We kick against things that could change our lives. Sometimes we kick against very important things that could make a difference in our lives and in the lives of people around us. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about this idea that we kick against that which could change our lives. And we're going to read a story about a guy who did that very thing. But when he embraced that truth, he embraced the truth that changed his life and actually changed the lives of people all over the world. We're continuing on in our series called Revolution. 
We're studying the book of Acts and about how this revolution began. And in week one, Steve talked to us about the power for this revolution, the power of Holy Spirit. And then he talked to us about the power of this revolutionary message that we have, this message of Jesus. And this week, we're going to look at a revolutionary conversion. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. If you want to grab one from the pew there, you can turn to page 913. Uh, If you want to use your phone, feel free, just not for social media or checking Olympic highlights. This is a story about the conversion of Saul. Saul is also Paul, and you may hear me this morning use those names interchangeably because they are. And Saul's name did not get changed to Paul as a result of this conversion. It was probably, he was either Saul or Paul. He was Saul, that was his Hebrew name to honor his Jewish heritage. He was Paul. That was his Roman name because he was taking the gospel to the world. And so he was both of those things. Paul's the guy that pens so much of the New Testament, and we're going to read about him. And as we look at the story of his conversion, we need to understand that it is one story in millions of stories. And we don't want to look at his story and try and make it our story. Conversion stories are very different. They're diverse. They're unique. And so we can't say, well, let's overlay Paul's story on ours to see if we did it right. That's not how it works. Some conversion stories are fast. Some conversion stories are slow. Some are dramatic. Some are quiet. They're different across the board. And so we can look at those stories and we can celebrate the goodness of God, but we don't want to try and figure out everything that happened to Saul should have happened to us. Now, there are common things. There's a commonality in conversions. Conversion isn't a word that's used a ton in the Bible. But when it's used, it's used to represent three things. It means these three things. Repent, to turn or return, return to who you were created to be, and restore. Repentance is the attitude that we bring into conversion. A turning is, if, you know, if we're walking away from Jesus, then we want to turn towards him. And restore, the restoration, is God's work in our lives. And so those things are universal when it comes to conversions. And we need to also understand that we cannot convert ourselves. No matter how hard we try, the gospel converts people. It's the power of Holy Spirit. It's us responding in faith, but we do not convert ourselves. And conversion is not achieved. See, we want to work for it. It's not achieved by adhering to some type of moral structure, some list of rules, You do not get converted to Christianity by following a list of do this and don't do that. As a matter of fact, conversion is a challenge to that kind of self-righteous morality. You don't sign up. You don't subscribe to Christianity like you would to a Netflix account. Conversion is a deep, profound change that happens to us. And we're going to read about that story this morning. There's also one more constant that happens in all conversion stories, and it's this idea that God relentlessly pursues us. We have a loving Father who is always pursuing us. I read this quote from C.S. Lewis this past week. He says, God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, king, husband. And I love that thought that God is approaching at an infinite speed. God is relentlessly pursuing us, not in anger, but out of love. And we see that in the story of Saul. So Acts chapter 9, 
Verses one and two say, meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way. Any followers of Jesus, he wanted to arrest them. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. You see, this is the path that Saul was on. In Acts chapter 7, it tells a story about a man named Stephen. Stephen was a follower of the way. He believed in Jesus, and he was teaching that Jesus was the only way to salvation. And the religious leaders of the day were having a very hard time with that. So they began hurling insults and later hurling stones at Stephen. And it says that they laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it tells us that Saul witnessed this death and was in full agreement. Saul hated those who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He was a Christian-hating, Christ-persecuting zealot. He was fanatical and uncompromising in trying to keep his religious tradition pure. He writes about himself in Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He says, you know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion, how I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews in my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. Like he was far and away the best persecutor of his generation. And that might seem strange. You see, the the world that he lived in, the religion that he ascribed to was one that was very rigid. And he was following all of these rules rigidly, better than anybody else. And yet he was also persecuting Christians better than anyone else, which might seem like a strange dichotomy, but that's what he was doing. That's how he thought he would gain the favor of God. That's how he thought he could be the best godly, righteous, moral person that he could be. And yet he was on the wrong path. You see, Paul was not going to serve on the Peace and Reconciliation Commission. That just wasn't his MO at the time. I mean, his conversion is unlikely. It's like Kylo Ren coming to the light side. It's it's like good, God-fearing people becoming New England Patriots fans. (laughs) Just shouldn't happen. Sorry. I had a young man talk to me after the 6.30 service last night telling me that I was out of God's will by saying that. Uh, So I hope I didn't lose you. Just know that that's the path that Paul was on. And this conversion is an unlikely conversion. He he wouldn't be at the top of your list to be like, oh yeah, he's gonna follow Jesus and change the world. It, It wouldn't be this guy. But Jesus was about to get Saul's attention. Look at verse three. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord, Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless for they heard the sound of someone's voice but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. Jesus comes And he gets Saul's attention in a huge way. He knocks him on his backside is what he does. And I don't know if it was the light that did that or the voice that did that or the truth that did that. But here you have Saul sitting there. And then he 
asks this question in verse five, which I think is a fascinating question. He says, who are you, Lord? Here we have Saul who was hyper-religious, incredibly moral. He says in Acts chapter 23, I I was a Pharisee. I, I was the most religious person possible. In Philippians chapter three, he says, I obeyed the law without fault. Here's this guy who was doing everything right according to religion. He was obeying all the rules, and yet he didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't know who Jesus was. He knew everything about the rules, but he had no idea what it meant to have a relationship. The way that he was following the rules wasn't bringing him any closer to Jesus. And I wonder if that could be us. I wonder if that could be us, that we know what it's like to follow rules and we try and go to church and we try and read our Bible and yet if we stood face to face with Jesus, would we know who he was or we would say, who are you, Lord? Would we be able to answer that question? Saul couldn't at that time. And so the God who who approaches at an infinite speed was getting his attention, and he was getting his attention in a big way, and that can be one of the things that maybe puts you off about the story. You might look at this story and be like, well, of course he was going to respond. I mean, that's some pretty significant, overwhelming evidence that he had. There was a light, there was a voice, he was knocked on the ground. But I would say this, the evidence that Saul had was not overwhelming, and the evidence that we have is not underwhelming. Because you could look at that and you could say, well, I've never had an experience like that. The evidence that Saul had was not overwhelming. He did not have to believe in what was happening to him. You can read about a guy named Judas in the New Testament who walked with Jesus everywhere for years and yet still betrayed him. You can read about all kinds of people who followed Jesus and yet left him. A closed mind does not have to open up to the evidence. Even this vision that Saul had could be played off. He could be like, oh, I just, I must have gotten into some bad hummus and then there's a light, and it was just crazy, and I don't know what's going on. The evidence, even though it seems overwhelming, doesn't have to lead you to the truth. I spent some time this past week, a very little bit of time, because it was a dark spiral that I was heading down. I was on the Flat Earth website, right? This, this is a picture that they have there, and this is this idea, right? And I was like, do they really believe this? And yet there seems like there's some very well-meaning people who believe that this is true, even contrary to the overwhelming evidence. You do not have to believe even when the evidence is overwhelming. And I would also say this, the evidence that we have is not underwhelming. That there are moments where you just know that there is a God who is orchestrating things. And maybe you see it in the life of a newborn, or maybe you see it in a sunset, or maybe you see it when you're out hiking and you just get this this sense, you know that, man, there's a God. Somebody's created this. Somebody's working in this. Maybe you see it because you've read through the scriptures and you've looked at all these prophecies written long before the time of Christ that are fulfilled in the life of Christ. The evidence we have is not underwhelming that we have reason to believe the same way that Saul believed. And I also love about this story, and it's not quite evident in the Acts 9 account, but it is as Paul retells it, that this was not an instantaneous change. 
You can kind of read it in Acts 9. You can kind of get this sense that, you know, he was a murderer, and then there was a light, and then he was the best Christian ever. But as he retells the story in Acts 26, he says this, Saul, Saul, this is Jesus talking to him, but this is Paul retelling this. Why are you persecuting me? It is useless for you to fight against my will. Now, literally in the Greek, it says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, what does that mean? He's saying, a goad, I have a picture here for you. A goad is something that a shepherd would use. It probably wasn't this fancy. Usually, they're not inlaid with gold. Uh, But it was a, a tool that a shepherd would use to poke sheep in particular sheep that were getting out of line. And the more that a sheep rebelled, the more that that sheep got poked. But the shepherd would do this in the best interest of the sheep. The shepherd goads the sheep to keep them safe, to lead them to food, to lead them to water, to keep them from falling off cliffs. And so Jesus is saying to Saul, it's it's useless for you to kick against all of this stuff that I've been poking you about. I'm going to get your attention. And I don't know if you think that we have a Savior that does that, but we have a Savior that pokes at us. We have a Savior that relentlessly pursues us, which means that there are times he pokes. And there are times that that's gentle. I can look back at my life and see all kinds of times where I feel like Jesus was just gently poking me, goading me, keeping me in the right direction, keeping me safe, keeping me following him. Now, there's times that it's not so gentle. And that's good, too. My father-in-law has three daughters, uh, one of which, of course, is my wife. And he loves to tell the story of the time that they went camping. And as they were camping, they were canoeing down this river. And as they were approaching some of these rapids, one of his daughters in the canoe, who I will not mention a name, but I love very dearly, um, (laughs) a big spider crawled out from somewhere in the canoe towards her. And her response is to jump up and to scream. Now, you know how unstable a canoe is. And so she's standing up screaming, and my father-in-law's in in the back of the canoe saying, sit down, sit down, sit down, please. Can you please sit down? And she wasn't listening. She was screaming about the spider. So he had to take action. Now, what was he holding in his hand? A canoe paddle. So he takes the canoe paddle, and he just bonks her on the top of the head. And it snaps her out of it. And she sits down, and nobody drowns. And that's a good thing. And so we have a God that sometimes gently pokes, and sometimes, if you will, hits us on the head with canoe paddles (laughs) to get our attention in a way that is loving. And sometimes God speaks to us through these gentle things, and honestly, sometimes God speaks to us through pain because nothing gets our attention like pain. And we get poked so that we can see. We get poked so that we can have vision. We get poked so that we can have freedom, so that we can have wholeness, because our Savior is relentlessly pursuing us. And Jesus says to Saul, it's useless for you to kick against this. I'm coming after you. And Jesus is coming after us. He's pursuing us with his love so that we can be free. Later on, Paul would write to Timothy. He would say, this is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. 
But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul's saying, I'm a prime example. Look at my life. Look at my example so that you will believe in Jesus and find eternal life. And we need to look at that example as it relates to salvation. Now, one of the things that that Paul wrestled with was works. And, And we see it in his writing. We see it in the way that he lived. And we can get caught in the same trap. We can get caught in this idea that if I build a big enough resume, then God will be more and more pleased with me. And the more I do for God, the more that he will look upon me lovingly, and eventually I'll get to this point where God will just be overwhelmed with how good I am and the good things that I do. And we get caught with this. And so we, we have a Bible, and we might even read it sometimes. And we're like, that's God. Look at me. I do that. And we... We go to church even on projected snow days. We're at church, and that's a good thing. And you know what? We serve. And, and not only do we serve, we serve in preschool because we know that that's extra Bible bucks right there when you serve in preschool. So God, look at all these things that I'm doing, and you know that I live in Oregon, so I'm going to recycle and God, that's a good thing too. And, and you know, you, you say, I give. I give money. I give my hard-earned money. And, and you know what? I cheer for the beavers. <laughs> yes, yes, you're welcome, beaver fans. Because it says in Matthew 25 to look out for the least of these. And so <laughs> that's just what we do. God, look at me. Look at all this good stuff I'm doing. And even on this list, we might even have a whole section of like, God, it's not only what I do, but I don't do a whole lot of really bad stuff. I've never murdered anybody. I've never stolen anybody's car. And we can get to the point where we create this list, and you can add all of these things to it, and then we want to stand back and be proud of our accomplishments and think that somehow this earns us favor with Jesus that somehow we will be able to stand upon these things, that this looks significant. And it might look significant from this angle, but maybe if you look at it from a top-down angle, it looks different, doesn't it? It kind of looks pretty thin, doesn't it? And we think, oh, it's our works that are going to sustain us. It's our works that give us favor. It's our works that we can stand on. But how long am I going to be able to stand on my works? I mean, is this going to hold me up at all? Not even for a second. It's not. And no matter how much we believe that it's the good things that we do that somehow earn us something with Jesus, it's not. And that's why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. We can't be good enough, and how good is good enough anyway? And no matter how much I would have written on this, it would not have supported me. And so it's not even about focusing on that. We need to shift our focus a little bit. We said earlier that repentance, or conversion, excuse me, is repent and turn and restore. And the first part of that repentance is this idea that it's not about all the good things that I've done. Man, I've done some pretty bad things. And in doing those things, 
I've sinned against Jesus. You know, when Jesus comes to Saul in this story, he doesn't say, Saul, you've broken the law. He says, why are you persecuting me? You've sinned against me. And we need to have that understanding that, yes, we have sinned against Jesus. And we need to come with this attitude of repentance and this understanding of our sin. And that's a terrible place to start, it seems like, but that's where we need to start. Tim Keller explains the gospel this way. He says, you are far worse than you ever dared believe. Now, just pause there for a second. That's maybe hard to hear, but it's true. We're far worse than we ever dared believe. And that's what we need to repent of. Those are the things that we need to be like, Jesus, I'm sorry, I've sinned against you. But the second half of this gospel that he says, but you are far more loved than you ever dared hope. You are so dearly loved, loved so much that Jesus saw the condition that we're in. He saw that we try and work our way forward and it's never gonna happen and we can't overcome this issue of sin and we need a sacrifice that is perfect and the only sacrifice that is perfect is Jesus. And so that's why when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he writes this. He says, I passed on to you what was most important. The most important thing, he says, the the biggest thing I can tell you is this. Christ died for our sins just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day just as the scripture said. That's the part that shows that we're far more loved than we ever dared hope. That Jesus came and he died for us. And so we repent and then we turn. And that turning is this Jesus I ask for forgiveness, I receive that forgiveness, and then conversion is all about lordship. Conversion is all about submitting to the lordship of Christ. It's saying, I've tried to do it on my own for so long, and none of it works, and it keeps falling through on me, and so Jesus, I wanna come to you. You see, the only thing that's truly gonna sustain us, right? There it is. It's Jesus. The only thing that's truly gonna hold us up, and it might look a little bit treacherous as it does to me now. But Jesus is the only thing that's gonna sustain us. He's the only thing that's gonna hold us up. That's it. And so as we repent and as we turn, we put our faith in Jesus. And that's how we become saved. That's when the restoration comes in. And that's why it says in Titus chapter three, again, talking about works to start, he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. That when we repent and that when we turn, we receive Holy Spirit in our lives and it's a new life, it's a new birth and it has nothing to do with our works. And you know what? It has nothing it has nothing to do with the quality of our faith. You know, you can have as much faith as you want in your works, and it doesn't matter. It's not the quality of our faith. It's the object of our faith. The object of our faith. When the object of our faith is Jesus, even when you have faith the size of a mustard seed, it sustains you. It holds you. It changes you. It saves you. And so I would ask you in this room, could you answer Paul's question? Who are you, Lord? Do you know who Jesus is? Have you put your faith in Jesus? 
Have you come to the point where you're tired of trying to work for it on your own and you need Jesus to rescue you? And so I want you to pause there for a minute because we're going to go on. And if that's you, and if you're wrestling with this, and if you've never made this decision, you can just tune me out for a little bit. Maybe you have already. I don't know. Tune me out for a little bit and begin to process, begin to pray about that. Because there's a lot of people in this room who have put their faith in Jesus. And there's, there's somebody here that I want to learn from. Uh, there's somebody here at the, at the end of this story that I think we need to uh, lean into. Verse 10 says, now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling, Ananias, yes, Lord, he replied, which I love. That's the difference right there immediately, you see. Jesus shows up to Saul. He's like, who are you? Jesus shows up to Ananias. He's like, yes, Lord. The Lord said, very specifically here, go over to Straight Street, to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. Well, of course he is, because he's blind, and he had this experience. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. Ananias knows who Saul is. And he's afraid. And, and he's like, okay, Lord, really? Saul? The, that Saul. That guy. Did I hear you correctly? I mean, he has my arrest warrant. He wants to murder me. But here you have Ananias in this posture of listening, but he's afraid. He's afraid. We get afraid in those situations too, don't we? We get afraid of this idea of, wow, Jesus wants to use me to be a part of these conversion experiences? We get afraid that we won't know what to say. We get afraid that we will get rejected. We'll get afraid that, that those people that we talk to will be further away from Jesus after we talk to him than they were before we talked to him. We get afraid that relationships will get broken, that we'll look like a crazy person. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't have to use Ananias in this story, but he did. He wanted to. Jesus wants to use us in the conversion stories of other people. Jesus does all the heavy lifting, but he wants to use us in those stories. And we need to step out in courage because the gospel is good news for everybody. It's not just good news for people that we think would make good Christians. It's good news for everybody. And so we have Ananias responding here. It says, Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and he was baptized. The Ananias was in a posture of listening and stepped out courageously to be a part of this moment that was such a kingdom moment. This moment that was gonna bring huge change to the world. And Jesus wants to use us in those moments as well. Salem Alliance Church is a community of Jesus followers located in downtown Salem, Oregon. And we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. You can view today's entire service online at livestream.com backslash Salem Alliance.